Let's talk a little bit about the issue of brain mets, carcinomatous meningitis, and spinal cord compression. Let's start out with brain mets because we get a lot of questions about that. And also I want to cover the paper at ASCO this year, and there was one last year in terms of BEV and brain mets, which is a very common question we get. Why don't we start, Patrick, with your case? This is someone I just saw very recently, a 75-year-old woman with non-small cell lung cancer who had neoadjuvant chemotherapy, surgery, and then radiation, and then did pretty well until six months later when she became confused. And an MRI showed a two and a half centimeter enhancing mass in the right parietal lobe. So this is a very common scenario, but it brings up a lot of the confusion and conflicting data in this field. So the first decision was to decide whether she should get surgery or not. She was in good condition? She was in very good condition. She was perfect, and her systemic disease was under control, which is an important issue. And there are two randomized trials that show that in patients with single brain metastases, taking out the brain metastases improves survival and improves performance status in local control. But she has a pretty small tumor, and in theory, radiosurgery might do the same thing. But there are no trials comparing radiosurgery or surgery. Let me just jump over to Manesh and say, how would you be thinking this through right now, 75-year-old lady like this? So I think this is a very common problem, and it's an emerging problem. We clearly see this in the group of patients that Patrick has described. Management of these patients historically was very simple. A patient would come in with brain metastases. They'd be presumed to have multiple brain metastases. They would get whole brain radiation therapy. It became more complicated with the knowledge and the appropriate understanding that there is a subset of patients with brain metastases, probably a very small subset, that benefits from very aggressive management of brain metastases. And this started off with the two surgical trials where a section of a single brain met, and in those trials whole brain radiotherapy was included, resulted in a significant decrease in relapse both at the local site as well as in the rest of the brain. And in one of those trials, they also looked at a surrogate endpoint for quality of life, which was really functional independence. How long could patients remain functionally independent? If the tumor was resected, those patients remained functionally independent for a far greater period of time. The radiosurgery data support the same thing. If you take a patient with a single brain metastasis and use radiosurgery as a mechanism of locally boosting therapy in addition to whole brain, you get similar outcomes. The question about radiosurgery versus surgery remains unanswered. That has never been appropriately tested in a well-powered clinical trial. And I think it has almost become fielder's choice based on the institution that the patient ends up at. John, what's your take on this? And what's the boundaries of surgery in terms of you have a younger patient, for example, in terms of how much surgery, how many lesions can be taken out? Well, there aren't absolute answers to those questions, but I think that The way we've been thinking about it is that in terms of the radiosurgery versus surgery for a single lesion, okay, certainly size plays a role. If the lesion's very small, you know, radiosurgery would be most appropriate. The larger the lesion, patients having symptoms, then we tend to favor surgery. It's the one in between, of course, where there's the debate. And the amount of brain edema plays a role. How close it is to the surface of the brain plays a role. You know, typically, a patient who has surgery for a MET that's near the surface of the brain is out of the hospital in two days. Within five days to a week there, they could be back, you know, if they were working, they could conceivably be sitting in an office. I mean, because there's very little brain manipulation that goes on with that operation. So if somebody who was 75, you know, obviously their age and their overall 
level of function coming into presentation, you know, plays a significant role. If that person had a lot of brain edema, then, and it was close to the surface, in a quiet area of the brain, I think that person probably would benefit from an operation rather than radial surgery. If somebody has a lot of edema and they have the few percent, I don't know what the percentage is, response of increased edema with focused radiation, that's a very difficult problem to manage. And they need to be on steroids for a fair amount of time. And those steroids begin to detract from that patient's life. So what happened with this patient? She had a tumor that had a lot of edema. And it was pretty close to the surface. So for the reasons that you outlined, she actually had surgery. We were worried that giving radiosurgery would increase the edema, at least for a period of time, and she would be steroid-dependent. And so where is she right now? So she had it taken out and did very well. And so then the issue then comes up is whether she should have whole brain radiation. So, Manesh? This has become a subject with a lot of controversy associated with it. And there are good reasons for the controversy. There is categorical evidence that the use of radiotherapy, whole brain radiotherapy, dramatically decreases the incidence of further relapse in the brain. However, there is concern that the use of whole brain radiotherapy would also induce neurocognitive side effects. And there are data to back both of these concerns and benefits up. So the real question is the balance. We know that progression of disease in the brain will also induce neurocognitive decline in the patient. We know that whole brain radiotherapy also has the ability to induce neurocognitive decline. So where's the balance in a given patient? In the vast majority of patients, the neurocognitive decline induced by recurrence is usually greater than the neurocognitive decline induced by whole brain radiotherapy. There are specific subsets of patients that experience more neurotoxicity from whole brain radiotherapy. These are generally the older patients. These are patients that have underlying disease of the microvasculature, for example, endarterial disease processes like diabetes, hypertension, etc. So if I had a 75-year-old with diabetes, with hypertension, I'd be more concerned about whole brain radiotherapy-induced neurocognitive decline. If the patient was healthy and otherwise had good vasculature, I would be less concerned about that. I guess the other issue, Tim, is what's going on in the rest of the body, and what do you think is going to happen in terms of your ability to control it? Do you have an ER-positive, HER2-positive breast cancer or lung cancer, as in this situation? Is she's now still no peripheral progression? Yeah, she's still free from systemic progression. Interesting. Any thoughts about making the decision, the whole integration of this decision? It does matter whether or not there's active systemic disease. Certainly, this lesion came from somewhere. This lesion actually might have been there from the beginning of their diagnosis, might have been much smaller, might have gotten therapy that was effective for her systemic disease, but not effective for the brain, and eventually got to the point where there were symptoms and they scanned. I think from that point forward, after you remove this tumor, the hard part is, is there something else that's ready to pop up? Is there really active systemic disease? But it sounds like in this case that there wasn't. So you might feel a little bit more comfortable because part of the issue is preventing these micrometastases from developing into larger metastases. But again, you are only able to control that during the time that you radiate. After you're done radiating, a new hematogenous spread of this and development of metastases of the brain, that is not being effectively treated by that radiation you just gave. What about systemic agents, Patrick, for brain myths? Nancy Lynn at your place has been looking at the issue of the anti-HER2 TKI, lapatinib, or any of the TKIs of any use in this situation, other agents? 
I think it's a totally unexplored area, and it's an area with a lot of potential. So drugs that inhibit HER2, that gets through the brain, I think have a lot of potential. Drugs that affect VEGF, so sidirinib, for instance, potentially might be useful. And Tracy has a trial with sidirinib and radiation that's about to start. Sidirinib and radiation for brain mets? For brain mets. Yeah, that sounds interesting. What's the deal with that? For brain mets. Any kind of brain mets? No, it's non-small cell. Non-small cell. Hmm. So this is April Eichler, who's one of our faculty members who got some funding from NCI to do a small phase two feasibility safety study with radiation. Hmm. And again, maybe this story around hypoxia is real. No one knows for sure, but that's the idea behind combining the anti-VEGF piece with the radiation. Interesting. Jim? You know, I think there is at least some anecdotal evidence that the anti-EGF tyrosine kinase inhibitors can be very effective in non-smokers with brain mets. I've been involved in a couple of patients who had more than one year of progression-free survival when they recurred just in the brain. Had it taken out, were put on Tarceva, they didn't want whole brain radiation therapy, and they remained progression-free. So I think that's an area that needs to be explored. Now, are these EGFR mutation tumors? Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. And actually, and we'll talk about carcinomas meningitis, but Mark Sosinski had presented a case on our audio program that just got published in the JCO of a woman who had carcinomas meningitis and an EGFR mutation. And there they use this pulse high dosing of relotinib, and she actually had a clinical response. I don't know if you saw that paper. Wait, Patrick, you're on that paper. We treated one patient who had the mutation systemically and responded, but developed leptomeningeal disease. And when we biopsied the tumor, it had the mutation, but the drug levels were low. Right. And so when you increase the drug level, that patient actually achieved a response in the CSF, at least for a period of time. What about the issue of BEV in brain mets? This is a really common issue. And can you talk about the ASCO paper this year? And then there was one last year looking at that. I think the most important piece of information I got from the ASCO presentation was that this was really a retrospective analysis of prior studies that have been done using bevacizumab, where they found that these patients weren't supposed to have brain mets, but they had brain mets. And I think the main take-home message was that it was tolerable, that patients didn't have hemorrhages. And these are all treated, though, right? Now, most of them were treated, but some of them were active tumors because they had found later when they went back and looked at scans that some of them were actually active tumors. So that I think the bottom line was there doesn't appear to be a toxicity, a new toxicity signal that's present with these brain mets. But a bigger question really is, we don't want to get trapped in our thinking that because we see a benefit in glioblastoma with single-agent bevacizumab, that somehow we think we're going to get a benefit from single-agent bevacizumab with brain mets. The molecular biology is completely different. And I don't think we are going to be able to see a response without the appropriate chemotherapies or other therapies that are effective for the primary. Although so, I think people are thinking more that they want to use the BEV for the peripheral disease. And, and then concerned. it would be, right. And I think that that's really in the end what it shows. But, but when you get into some of the neuro-oncologist minds, some of it's, oh, we should be using BEV for brain mets. That's interesting. Well, BEV for brain mets probably isn't going to be a very good answer, just like it's not a good answer for breast cancer alone. It's not a good answer for lung cancer alone. It has to be used in some combination setting. And actually, David, one of the questions we got was the issue of Temidar in brain mets. And there are people out there using that. I don't know. Do you? Do you think it's a reasonable 
strategy? Well, it's interesting. Long ago in the New England Journal, there was this case report of a patient with multiple melanoma brain mets who got temozolomide alone, no radiation, no nothing, had this tremendous response. Those are very uncommon. Some of the more recent data in the more common tumors in non-small cell lung cancer, temozolomide has some efficacy, but very little. In breast cancer, it did essentially nothing. So I think temozolomide for recurrent brain metastases is, I guess it's a drug on the list, but the efficacy is unimpressive. There have been some clinical trials looking at radiation plus concurrent temozolomide done essentially all in Europe. I think Greece has done most of the studies. They've reported some nice response rates, but they've never been confirmed in a phase three trial. So I think off-study temozolomide is certainly not the answer for brain metastases, and I think we need to do other research into more active drugs. Manesh. So let's go back to the papers that we just heard about. So these are two trials that came from Greece. And the initial trial included a mix of patients with small cell and non-small cell lung cancer. And the second trial, which has never really seen the light of a full publication, has only been presented in abstract form, included only patients with non-small cell lung cancer. The response rate dropped dramatically when they eliminated the small cell lung cancer patients from trial one to trial two, but still was significantly better with a combination of temozolomide and radiation. Unfortunately, other efforts to replicate those results have failed. And if we look at temozolomide alone in the context of untreated brain metastasis, the response rate for non-small cell lung cancer is about 10%. So clearly, this is going to be very difficult to demonstrate as having substantial efficacy. In that context, I would be hard-pressed to recommend this to a patient as acceptable therapy. In the context of a clinical protocol, I think it makes sense. Outside of that context, it would be hard to justify this as a standard of care. There is, however, one other point I would like to make about temozolomide. I think it's useful to think about this agent from the perspective that it crosses the blood-brain barrier in significantly greater amounts than other drugs that we know of. And although it has only a 10% response rate, second and third line agents in non-small cell lung cancer have 10% response rates. So you could argue it's as good as approved second and third line agents in non-small cell lung cancer. And so perhaps the place for an agent like that, which crosses the blood-brain barrier, is not at the time when a patient has a large bulk of disease in the brain, but in a high-risk patient population that is going to develop brain metastasis, and this group of patients has completed their systemic therapy, could they be treated prophylactically with a certain number of cycles of temozolomide to prevent or delay the development of brain metastasis? There have been studies in melanoma suggesting Correct. just that lower exactly. rate of brain metastasis. And such a trial is, in fact, ongoing in non-small cell lung cancer with temozolomide. Tracy? I just want to come back to the ASCO talk and abstract on safety of bevacizumab in patients with brain meds. It may be absolutely right. Maybe it is. But I would exercise some caution there because I don't think the message should be that because they went back retrospectively and looked at patients who had occult brain meds, which are usually going to be very small single lesions, that it's safe now to use bevacizumab in patients with brain metastases. Never mind the fact that there are certain histologies which may have a higher likelihood of bleeding like squamous cell carcinoma of the lung, melanoma, etc. So I really think some of those cases were prospective. Most of them, however, 
in other words, some of those cases, they knew they had brain meds and they treated with bevacizumab, but the overwhelming majority were accidents. And so I think they really need to do a prospective trial to show that it is safe in patients with symptomatic brain metastases before there's a message that goes out that bevacizumab is safe in brain meds. What about the time course of the neurocognitive changes, given the short lifespan that these patients have? Do you see acute changes within a few weeks that people have major problems? So there are at least two patterns and probably more. Neurocognitive function is not one domain. There are multiple domains of neurocognitive functions. And if we assess these neurocognitive functions, we see different patterns over time. The domain that perhaps is affected the fastest and earliest as a consequence of whole brain radiotherapy is short-term memory and memory recall. And this can occur as early as two, three, four months. It's measurable in two, three, or four months' time. However, the pattern is quite intriguing. If we wait for these patients to develop brain metastasis as a recurrent phenomenon, they do get not only neurocognitive domain changes, but also changes in other domains, which then far outweigh the neurocognitive changes from whole brain radiotherapy. And there are a number of papers in the literature that actually show this. So I think this is a very intriguing issue in patients with brain metastasis. The real problem is the majority of patients do not survive well past 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 months. And so long-term neurocognitive changes are very poorly studied in this population of patients. Let's touch on the issue of carcinomatous meningitis. And Tracy, you just gave a great education session on this topic at ASCO. What's new and exciting in this part of neuro-oncology? Unfortunately, there's not a lot new. There's some intriguing anecdotal observations looking at some new agents intrathecally for these patients. There was an abstract, I think, looking at intrathecal trastuzumab. At the last ASCO meeting. At the last ASCO meeting. And intriguingly, the best responders were HER2 new positive breast cancer patients. So these things need to be followed up on. Unfortunately, outside of the setting of leukemic meningitis and lymphomatous meningitis, there's not a lot of response to intrathecal chemotherapy. Occasionally you'll see a patient respond, but it's really on the order of about one in five patients. And it's a big population of patients, and we're seeing more of these cases now, especially... Is it a big in, population? Well, we don't really know how many of these are diagnosed each year. The best estimates are 10,000 to 20,000. That's certainly an underestimate, because if you look at autopsy studies, there's a much higher incidence of this at the time of death. It comes back to this issue, though, that these are very hard trials to do. The patient population is very sick. They have competing risks of death. We've participated in some of these leptomeningeal metastasis trials. You end up screening four or five patients for every one you enroll because there's always something. A liver test is off, et cetera. So it really calls out for a group, you know, a critical mass of centers that are interested in this, brain metastasis, leptomeningeal metastasis, and doing these trials in a group like that. To date, there is not such a group, but there now is this interest at NCI in breast cancer and brain metastasis and leptomeningeal metastasis. So hopefully we'll start to see, we are seeing some trials come out of that effort. I do want to get to a couple other areas also about neurologic complications, starting out, David, with spinal cord compression. Any questions that you get from oncologists about this? Any things that people are doing in practice that maybe they shouldn't be doing? or is it kind of a stabilized field? Well, I think probably the most important practical thing that docs need to know is that I think for every patient who presents with spinal cord compression, I think a neurosurgeon needs to be involved right off the bat. There's 
the seminal work by Roy Patchell comparing surgery plus external beam radiation with external beam radiation therapy alone. And clearly, this was presented at ASCO in the plenary session several years ago, maybe four or five years ago. And I think that's a critical thing to keep in mind. These patients do a lot better if they're candidates for surgery. And so I think that always has to be at the top of the list. Another emerging field within um, this area of spine metastases and maybe epidural disease is that of spinal radiosurgery. And I think there's a lot of very good work being done in the management of these patients. And the importance being that a patient who's already had external beam radiation to a certain area and has a local recurrence could still receive spinal radiosurgery. So I think this is something really important for docs to be aware of in this patient population. So there's What do we know about the actual incidence of spinal cord compression? I assume it's decreasing compared to say 10, 15 years ago, or is that not the case? You know, I'm not sure of the exact trend in incidence, but I think as patients live longer with better systemic therapies, I would suspect that the incidence, if nothing else, might even be on the rise a little hmm. bit, but I don't have numbers to back that up. Jim? Neil, one of the major points for me with spinal cord compression is the delay in diagnosis. It is incredibly frustrating. Working with physicians that cancer patient has back pain, they're not evaluated, just do the darn MRI. <laughs> you know, it has to be at the forefront of the thought process. That's where these patients really get into trouble. When they have hemiparesis, it's hard to get it back, and it's preventable. So I assume you're talking about missing people who don't have neurologic problems, just working them up based on pain? Absolutely, or subtle neurologic problems. Oh, it is from your bortezomib or from your navelbine, your neuropathy. No, if a cancer patient has a complaint, expand your thought process, think about it, and investigate it. Interesting. Any other issues? What about surgical issues in this problem? Are we pretty well on top of that, or are there issues in terms of how these people are managed surgically? Well, I think that in terms of the surgery that what Jim said is absolutely accurate. If a person doesn't walk into the hospital, they don't walk out. So uh, if they come in not moving their legs, then most likely they're going to leave not moving their legs, or at least not very well. So getting people treated promptly is important. I think there's a growing body of evidence that just a bony decompression or a laminectomy, so to speak, alone, followed by radiation is not as good as some stabilization procedure at the time of the decompression, that there's enough instability there that in terms of pain control, quality of life, as well as preventing loss of function down the road, that a fusion procedure at the time of the decompression is better than just a decompression alone. Let's finish out talking about supportive care for these patients. Jim, what are some of the approaches being applied at centers of excellence like yours? I've been very impressed that neuro-oncologists focus on quality of life. I think that's the major difference between the community care of glioma patients and a brain tumor center that has a whole staff that really focuses on the family, 
other issues living with this disease because it is totally devastating. And if you don't pay attention to those issues, then the patient suffers. When I take care of these patients, maybe 20% is spent on treatment and survival. 80% is spent on living with the disease. What kinds of palliative problems could we do better with? I'd particularly be interested in the issue in terms of corticosteroid management. Is that something that could be done better? Certainly. I mean, I think Jim puts it very well that we have to put into context about how patients and families are managing with the disease, and it includes not just the nuts and bolts of going through the specific experimental therapy that we're doing it, but the complementary therapies and the steroids are ones we hurt patients with really most significantly. And there have been some efforts to try to minimize steroid use that's not well put in the community. Patients still come in on horrendous doses of steroids and tremendous long-term steroid complications. And one of our major jobs is always to minimize the steroid dose. And you know, David, one of the things I try to figure out a little bit with the anti-angiogenic agents is what effect would they have, for example, on normal tissues? Ovary, we see patients who, for example, on Bev, have ascites go away with not that dramatic a tumor response. The ovary doctors think it's some kind of vascular thing. What do we know about anti-angiogenic effects and the ability to lower steroid dose or the effect on edema? Yes. Well, most of the clinical trials that have looked at bevacizumab and other anti-VGF therapies have shown that the majority of patients can come down on their steroids. So that's a tremendous quality of life benefit. And And do you think that's mechanical or anti-tumor? I think it's probably mechanical. I think it's a decrease in the vascular permeability. And so we see that in the T2 flare changes on MRI, and that occurs as soon as a day after starting therapy, telling us that this is primarily a vascular permeability issue in terms of the edema and ability to get off of steroids. Do you see like immediate benefits clinically? In other words, you don't change anything except you introduce an anti-antigenic like Bev. Can you see people functionally get better just by doing that in 24 hours? I don't know if I see it in 24 hours, but very early on, it does occur. And it's actually very exciting because I think this is really the first drug that I'm aware of, anti-tumor drug for CNS malignancies that actually produces a clinically relevant improvement in symptoms in neurologic function. So I think that's very exciting. Manesh, what's your take on the issue of steroids and morbidity, particularly as patients get farther down the line? How much of an issue is this? It's a huge issue. I think Tom put it very correctly that we see patients chronically on very, very high doses of steroids without attention to the sequelae of these chronic long-term doses of steroids. It's a major, major issue. And I think One major benefit of anti-angiogenic agents is we can get patients off steroids very quickly. Another area of research that I think is lacking and needs a lot of attention is what we can do to replace steroids with other substitutes. For example, agents like corticotropin releasing factor. CRF-type agents might have far less toxicity than steroids themselves directly. Has that actually been looked at? There are trials ongoing that are looking at substances like CRFs to substitute for steroids. And the early data look promising The data are still weak at this point to conclude that they can replace steroids, but it looks like this is an area that will have a significant impact. Jim, what about end-of-life issues, referral to hospice? Is that happening at the right time with these patients, do you think? I really don't think so. I think that it has to be an ongoing discussion. Every time a patient progresses, one of the options I always talk about 
is comfort care, hospice. They need to hear it on a regular basis. To walk into a room and have it so obvious to the neuro-oncologist is painful that that patient has suffered all that time. So I really don't think it is brought up early. Tim, what's your take in terms of the frequency of specific end-of-life morbidities. How many of these patients have pain as opposed to, I think, more about mental deterioration than the typical end-of-life issues? Yeah, I think that as these tumors grow in the brain, we begin to lose, if that happens to us, and hopefully it won't, neurologic function. Usually what happens is we become, depending on what area is impaired, there will be changes that usually lead to less and less arousal it's really quite frequently that the patient declines to a point where you're really dealing many times more with the caregiver with regard to end-of-life issues than the patient themselves. You engage them early, like Jim says, and you will do that. But most of the time, these patients have significant cognitive and neurologic decline. They usually do not have pain. That's been my experience, that it isn't pain that they have. Unfortunately, the main reason why patients die is not because of cerebral herniation, but might be a blood clot, might be just simply that they just shut down, they lose the ability to swallow. That's probably the biggest thing that happens. And a decision has to be made. Do they just die of dehydration over a short period of time, or do they put a tube in and die either from cerebral herniation or from a pneumonia that would be a common cause, just they can't tolerate their own saliva? So David, what about the use of anticonvulsants in these patients? Many times we see patients coming to us who have never had a seizure but are on anticonvulsants. And many of the anticonvulsants can have a lot of toxicity and really have a major impact on quality of life. And I think what's important to know is that for a patient who's never had a seizure, there's no benefit to being on an anticonvulsant after probably two or three weeks postoperatively. And some of our surgeons actually don't use anticonvulsants at all. But I think it's a very important practical point for docs out there seeing these patients that if they haven't had a seizure, they should come off their anticonvulsants. What right now is the standard first, second line anticonvulsant therapy? And what kind of problems do you see when people are on them and maybe they don't need to be? Right. There are a couple issues related to that. The first of which is there are a group of anticonvulsants that are hepatic enzyme inducers. There are some anticonvulsants that are not or have minimal impact on hepatic metabolism. I think in general, as a neuro-oncology community, we certainly prefer the latter group. So there are several drugs in that class where we don't have to worry about dosing of drugs like arenatecan. And so if anticonvulsants need to be used I think in general we favor that class of drugs. And it seems as well that that group of drugs has less toxicity as a generalization. Many of the hepatic enzyme inducers like phenytoin, carbamazepine, and the like have a fair amount of neurocognitive depression. Patients tell us they're quite fatigued. So quality of life is impacted significantly in those settings. We have to do a patterns of care study in this and find out what's going on because we could present a case like that and say, what would you do at this point and see? And I guess that could be a big issue. Your take is that most or a lot of people are getting anticonvulsants they don't need? I wouldn't say most, but there's a sizable minority of patients who come to us 
with that. And the other thing that's difficult in that setting is if you have a patient that comes to you, be it a month out or six months or a year out, maybe referred from the community, and you ask them, have you ever had a seizure? Sometimes it's difficult to get a clear answer from the patient, not through any fault of their own, but so much has happened to that patient that they might not remember that they're either their staring spells or that, you know, a few minutes of tremor in their left arm was actually a seizure. So I think it's really important up front that that history be taken. Manesh, you had a point? Yeah, so seizures and anticonvulsants bring up another issue for these patients, which is huge for both the patient and the family, and that's driving. Hmm. There are no clear recommendations as to whether these patients should be allowed to drive, whether there should be a period where they're not allowed to drive, or whether they should never, ever drive in their lives again. And any deprivation of driving privileges can have a major impact on the patient and the family in terms of what they do, in terms of a livelihood and everything else. And there is simply no research in this arena. There is very little documentation. A lot of this, I think, is driven by the medical legal climate. If a physician were to give permission to a patient to drive and the patient has a seizure and gets into an accident, whose responsibility is it? What about if the patient has no history of seizures? Any issue there about driving? Absolutely. I think that comes up if they have a malignant brain tumor again, that they certainly are at risk of having a seizure. And if a patient asks you and says, could I drive? And if you put it down officially on paper and say that you've given the patient permission to drive, and if that patient then has a seizure and has an accident, what is your liability in this Hmm. context? Wow, That's an issue we have not solved. David? What I tell my patients who ask me is I usually will refer them to the Occupational Therapy Driver Safety Evaluation Program Hmm. because I think that does a couple things. One, for a busy doc out in the community, really, they get asked that question, and in their busy schedule, they want to have kind of a yes or no answer, which isn't going to be very adequate because there are many functions within driving that we can't really evaluate in the short time of an appointment. So I think referring them does a lot. It gives a patient a better evaluation as to whether they're safe on the road. And it also takes away some of the onus both on the patient and the doc, because if the patient gets into an accident, then at least you can go back and the patient has been through a program has made a college try to figure out, was I safe to drive? That's fascinating. So within the occupational therapy, is there actually a literature or a platform that this is standardized? Or is, I don't you have, know You if can send is, your patients to the occupational therapist for driving evaluation. That's right. And wow. I don't know how widespread such programs we are. We have it also. That's fascinating.